Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the perspective of growing up. I originally wanted to call this something that just didn't flow. Things along the lines of making mistakes or just growing up. I'm going to refer to things like uh, magazines and beer and music choices and other stuff of that nature. So I want to begin with a couple of quick thoughts. One is, I don't know if I'm going to put an explicit language tag on this yet or not, but it will contain adult ideas. So this is going to be a, you know bordering on a on an adult topic. For example, I don't intend to talk about mistakes sexually growing up, at least, on, at least on, on paper, I'm not looking at that, but I will discuss pornography a little bit. So I'm going to go in, in a direction that, you know, going to be a little more adult. And the second thing is the perspective that I'm talking about has a certain religious mooring to it. And rather than cover this topic in an inappropriate conversation and kind of give the the background from a perspective of Christianity, I'm a more mature perspective of Christianity. I'm going to direct you to the website at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Up in the header bar, where the title of the show is, there's one little link called About, which is simply the mission statement of, of the show, and the other one is called Christianity. And if you click on that one, it's a uh, very long article called Christianity 201, Time for Solid Food. And this refers to the difference between the legalistic perspective of Christianity that has been presented in the United States of America too long and too often versus what is called for in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, just quickly quoting verses 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you in the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That article, Christianity 201, Time for Solid Food, is foundational to what I'm about to discuss. It's a very long article. I would totally understand if someone didn't commit the time to reading it, particularly if you were not that interested in a genuine New Testament theology. You know, I, I quote liberally from the Bible and go into some degree of detail, as it implies it's advanced coursework. But that advanced coursework cuts to the heart of what I wanted to talk about from the perspective of growing up. When you look back on things from your past, do you view them as a problem, as a sin, as a profound evil, as things from which you can never recover? Or do you view them simply as growing up? Are they mistakes? Or are they just the process of growing up? And the reality is that both of those ideas are true. But the difference is, if your approach to these issues come from the angle of judgment, of things that you have to make up for, notice the difference in what I would describe as a genuine Christian theology. I've heard said before by apologists, by people who specialize in explaining Christianity and its differences to the rest of the worldviews and religions out there, in this way, that Christianity comes from a perspective not of what people 
as humans can do or as individuals can do to make themselves worthy of the blessings of God, but strictly things that God does out of grace on behalf of people. In the Jewish tradition, there were a set of laws that needed to be kept and a set of rituals that needed to be performed. You were doing these things to get to heaven, to get to God. Uh, in East, even in the Eastern you know, practices where reincarnation is involved. Reincarnation is triggered by what? By things you do to limit the burden of karma, to control the things that you might do that would be evil toward others, that would bring you down in the spiral instead of forward in the spiral toward enlightenment. Almost all of these world religious systems, including Islam with its fairly strict method and time of prayer, are all things I do. It's my action. And if you look at the current political climate of Christianity. So the Christianity, not from what may be happening inside an individual's relationship with God, the church moving in ways that show up in odd sort of seemingly odd sort of ways, like taking care of the poor, how weird it is that in a political conversation about Christianity, we should look upon people whose ministry is about using their resources to take care of the poor as being out of step somehow. And yet that might be true. Certainly there's a, a strand of politically active Christianity today that would probably make a quasi-theological argument that taking care of the poor is evil and wrong, despite, of course, everything that Jesus said. And if you'd like to hear Jesus's perspective, there's an article up on inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. But no, to me, the difference is that a true Christian theology, a true Christian perspective is, hey, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm I'm a fallible human being. I'm going to continue to make mistakes. I may or may not learn from the mistakes that I made in the past. And my growth through those mistakes takes two fronts. The front I'm going to talk about today, the human front, and the theological, the religious, the spiritual front. But from a Christian perspective, that spiritual growth is all God and no me. It's 100% his grace. It's not about things I can do. I can't obey a set of rigid rules well enough that I've got one up on God. I can show up, pull out my contract and say, you have no choice, but to, you have no choice, but to accept me in a relationship with you. It doesn't work that way. So that's the, the, the religious piece of it that I'm just going to set aside for now. And this is going to be more of a, perhaps a reminiscing type show, because even though there are things that I want to deal with that are, you know, I just need to put the disclaimer out there. Some of the things I'm going to talk about are not the best way to go about doing things. As far as I can tell, my kids, who are now late teens, very close to the legal age of drinking, for example, didn't handle things the way I did. They did a better job. So while I have talked in previous inappropriate conversations about my relative degree of inexperience, the uh, way I've intentionally sheltered parts of my life, now is the time to talk about the other side of the coin, because I have lived, lived my life in a way that would make me both the ideal candidate for president from a Republican perspective. I've got this squeaky clean past with one sexual relationship and all that other sort of stuff. Oh, and by the way, it's a heterosexual relationship and kids were involved. Well, I've got mistakes there too. I mean, we've used birth control. We've planned our family. We only have two kids and not 27 or the current, you know, a year ago talking about this particular idea I would never have dreamed that I'd be talking about anything anywhere near the mainstream of Republican political thought, criticizing the idea of using birth control and controlling family size. And yet here we are, 2012, 
And the political climate hasn't even really heated up yet. We've got an election in November. It's going to get worse. And yet I'm sitting here saying, yeah, that part of me that I think is, is squeaky clean and sheltered, I've never used an illegal drug, you know, never had an extramarital affair, all that other sort of stuff. I kind of balance that out with some of the things which clearly are not um, what we would call the ideal. And I guess the, the line here I'm going to draw is that at some point I'm going to hit the sexual component of some of this behavior, and then I have to make a judgment call on whether to bring some of this stuff up later. I want to hit three main ideas. One is magazines, one is beer, and perhaps alcohol in general, and the other is music. And I'll touch on music only very briefly, because I know I've done a couple of other music-related shows before. In fact, one very recently here. So when I was a kid, we lived in two different houses. And one of those houses was, I would call the house I lived in when I was in elementary school. It creeped a little bit toward junior high school. I, I, I got maybe as far as the seventh grade or the end of the seventh grade. And then the other house was the house I lived in the rest of the way. So uh, almost preteen versus teen in terms of how you look at it. And yet, I don't remember the house we lived in before then. It's a funny thing about memory. I don't know that most of us have many memories of being one or two or even three years old. The earliest memory that I can recall and say, yes, I'm 100% sure this happened this way. And I not only remember the visual or the experience, but I remember the context of the experience. I mean, I remember it was not even in the city where I went to elementary school, but it's really one of the very few memories I have of that, you know, before four years old, before five years old, anyway, kind of age range. It was my, uh, my older brother and my older sister and I, I don't know whether my younger sister was in the room or not, on a Sunday afternoon, uh, after church, after lunch, sitting in a living room, kind of an area, watching TV, and the show that we were watching was Gorgo. Now, Gorgo was originally released, I think, in 1964, black and white, monster movie, filmed by a Japanese company, but set in England. And the appeal was you, you get to see a Godzilla like character destroying, you know, key landmarks in London, you know, so you already kind of have this mental image of Big Ben is going down, right? You'd expect that. I mean, if you set a dinosaur film in Tokyo, you know, there's certain landmarks that are going to get attacked. And, and in England, it's the same. What made Gorgo different was, of course, that what you had is scientists have found inside the ocean, a what turns out to be a baby dinosaur. Of course, it's enormous, but it's a baby dinosaur. And it ends up you know, being studied, and then it ends up in a circus-type, you know, sort of traveling road show. And mom comes looking for her kid. This, you know, that's the basic plot line. I've actually spoiled Gorgo a little bit there. Sorry about that. But that's my earliest memory. But when we lived in, in the city that I grew up in, where I spent most of my life, including an elementary school in one school district and most of junior high and all of high school in another school district— we were in two different houses, of course, because we changed school districts. And in the smaller of those two houses, we had a two-car garage that was really fully in use the entire time as a garage. When I lived um, in the other house, that garage got converted into a living space, and we did some stuff that was a little bit different with it. But when, when we had a real garage, as you might imagine, that garage was never, ever organized. You see two models about garages, and I think the model has everything to do with how much your family is committed to the idea of working either on vehicles or in, in areas like carpentry and welding. I mean, if you're handy around the house or if you're rebuilding a car or if you've got a, a vehicle driven habit, you know, like 
snowboarding or boating or something like that, then what you probably have is that model of a, of a pristine, clean garage that is being used for the vehicles that are either housed there or being serviced there. That is not who we were. We were the cars in the driveway because just as often as not, there was not going to be a good way to put the cars into the garage. If we had a sudden hailstorm, there would be a certain amount of effort and time needed to stack things differently, whether bicycles or baseball bats and balls or, or boxes or whatever, to make that transition. I don't know what the source of this is. I think it's possible that my parents, when they moved from one city to another, a, a good seven or eight hour commute before I was in elementary school age, that may have been the same size house. Whether we were going from renting to owning, I don't know, but I think we may have been in one of those cases where even if you've got the exact same kind of living space, if it's not organized the same way, you're going to end up with some boxes in the garage. It's just the way it is. There was a box kind of underneath a workbench that was never, in my estimation, never intended to be part of the house in terms of part of the library or part of my parents' bedroom or, or anything like that. And I discovered this box one day, as you will, because in the summertime, when you're a kid, there's going to be a lot of your time that's occupied by bicycling around with your friends, playing, playing ball games, whether baseball or softball or soccer or frisbee or whatever. But there's going to be other moments where you're just dead bored. And one of the things that I did when I would get dead bored was I would explore. And I'd explore in two contexts. Either there really was something I was looking for. I'd hit the point where maybe I was able to read well enough that it wasn't just Dr. Seuss. I, I could find other things to read. So you're looking for books, looking for reading material or playing a game. So if I'd seen recently enough something like Journey to the Center of the, of the Earth or The Mysterious Island or even Ice Station Zebra, I might be playing around the house in the backyard in the neighborhood as if I was an explorer, as if I was on some sort of mission. And so we would play it in that sort of sci-fi vein quite a lot. Me, my neighbors, my, my little sister, my friends from school. On this one occasion, though, I remember being alone. I don't know why that was. And I discovered a box which must have had at least two dozen Playboy, Penthouse, Wii-type magazines in them. Now, this is a crucial growing up kind of a moment, right? I mean, elementary school, not yet really that aware. I hadn't had the talk yet. I hadn't been in that class in church that I've described before, a, a sex education the way it probably ought to be, but the way it's not being done anymore, where somebody sat down and talked about all of the things, good, good and bad, or uh, help, healthy and helpful, but also risky and problematic in the realm of human sexuality. That hadn't happened yet. So here I am for the first time looking at these particular types of images. And even then, these would have been magazines from the very early 70s, I'm guessing, if not earlier than that, where you're looking at um, sort of soft-focused, airbrushed, breast emphasis of Playboy magazine versus the a little bit more um, straightforward but lower torso emphasis of Penthouse magazine. So you had that, that kind of contrast and the more naturalistic, uh, different, different ways of grooming, uh, hair under the arm, so forth and so on, from a magazine like We. Now, later, I would encounter all these magazines again in college with V8 Nate, because Nate was a real character, lived just down the hall. I was never his roommate, but V8 Nate had all of these magazines and many, many more. Uh, Gent, Chick, Swank, Knave, Hustler, 
My father wasn't in that vein. My father's focus was very straightforward. His collection, which I seemingly discovered, was pretty much uh, Penthouse, Playboy, and Wii. And I can recall sitting in the garage, the kind of the garage door was down, but the lights were on. But the kind of light that a garage provides, because most of us, if we think of the uh, of the car park in our house, it's not a well lit environment. Again, unless you're one of those families where the garage is a place where people are working on cars, fixing up cars. Again, my family had a different set of pursuits. And I can remember, I don't know whether I previously had a an erection or a full erection before, but I certainly remember having one on this particular day and not having the first clue what to do with, for, or about it. And even if I'd had a clue I don't know that that would have led to any sort of, you know, I don't know if I was at an age of sexual maturity where anything could have been done about it anyway. It was simply a matter of saying, okay, I'm receiving all of this information. This information is extremely interesting to me. I don't really feel like I need to have a conversation with my older brother about it, and I'm certainly not going to have a conversation with my older sister or my mom, and I'm not ready to have a conversation with dad. This is, after all, you know, me snooping around his stuff. In an otherwise innocent context, I wasn't going to look for the girly magazines. I simply stumbled upon them. And yet for the first time at a fairly young age, have connected with the brain chemistry response to that stimulus, which would then later lead to me figuring out, well, okay, what was attractive about the used bookstore for me versus the used record store? Because beyond any doubt, my attitude was, if one of those two places had to go completely out of business, which one would I have kept? And I've probably made that clear. In the most recent inappropriate conversation, I would have kept the used record store. That was where I really had my passion. That was where my interest lied. But there was one thing about the used bookstore that was very, very interesting to me. And I don't know that this is necessarily as true today. Today, the used bookstore, at least the ones in the cities where I've lived recently, perform the function of trying to maintain things that have gone out of print. So they've tried to keep up with the publishing industry, and their focus really has been about books. But back then, the used bookstore had as much to do with magazines as it did to do with books. And if you wanted to see naked breasts, you could you certainly could go in the National Geographic direction on any National Geographic issue that was dealing with a focus on Africa and a focus on people at the same time. But not only did the used bookstores that were close to me have a section of used magazines available to buy from the National Geographic perspective, they also had Playboy and Penthouse back issues, used copies of those magazines available to buy as well. The thing is, this was America that was coming out of the sexual revolution in the late 60s into the me generation of the 70s, and in this case I mean me in every sense of the word, a very self-controlled, auto-directed approach to sexuality is represented here in this branch of the publishing industry. It's around 1973 or so, give or take, where the U.S. Supreme Court, of course unbeknownst to me at the time, but the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled that there was a place where pornography would be okay. So you had book publishers and movie makers beginning to push this dial and kind of find out with the U.S. court systems where those limits were. In other words, this is before Ronald Reagan's America, where you would suddenly see this, this puritanical shift. It was also before Jimmy Carter's America, where even if Jimmy Carter had not gone on a witch hunt against pornography, the way Reagan did later in his term, 
Jimmy Carter was certainly somebody who would have advocated for a much more chaste approach to sexuality. But I found in my own garage some of the first mental images. And I've got to tell you that whether this is good, bad, or indifferent, whether this is a mistake that I should be ashamed of, or whether it's just growing up, I have a mental image of at least one of those women from my father's box in the garage that has stuck with me to this very day. And that's perhaps a cautionary tale. I took it as a cautionary tale. Because again, in my early teens, I guess would be the way I would word it, before I was old enough to drive, I just needed to be old enough to ride a bicycle to the used bookstore. Because the, the person running the used bookstore seemed relatively indifferent to the, any of the ideas of age. There was no ID being exchanged there. So if you wanted to go in and buy a backdated copy of Playboy or, Playboy or Penthouse, you weren't going to get any flack. I got the impression that these stores didn't buy something that they wouldn't be willing to sell to anybody. There was no um, back room with a special collection. I'm just talking about straightforward, what we would now consider to be the mainstream side of this sort of, you know, naked women in pictures industry, where I'm assuming lately it's, it's much more colorful than that. It certainly was in V8 Nate's dormitory room, more colorful than that. But at this stage, I've, I know that I've accumulated some of this stuff and very recently, somebody put a, twost, a post up online that I saw and was very amused by because I thought it, it was the perfect question to ask for this particular topic. If you're somebody who owns a vibrator, how exactly do you go about the process of disposing of it when you're done? There's no market for used vibrator. The way there, at least back then when I was a kid, there was, seemed to be a market for used pornography, for want of a better word. You, you would see, and you may still even today if you went to look at a, a big used bookstore, a bookstore with a good inventory, copies of The Happy Hooker, or almost anything that was you know, written popularly at the time by you know, people who were writing sexually or oriented memoirs, for example. And I wouldn't see this as any different than that. So to me, the, there was this market. But once you accumulate pornography, especially now in the post-Reagan backlash era, how do you get rid of it? I mean, what do you do? Uh, to me, there isn't a used bookstore in town that I can think of that if you had a, you know, a stack of a dozen magazines you wanted to dispose of, where would you go with them? How would, you get, how would you get rid of that? I had to make that decision because some of these things which were given to me, my people, like V8 Nate and other college roommates, things that I'd accumulated over time. And then at some point I remembered before my kids were old enough to be in elementary school that I was about to be in the same situation that my father didn't know he was in. I was about to be the person who had this box of magazines somewhere in my house that at some point my son or my daughter you know, would, were going to end up encountering. And how do you deal with that? And I, I sort of had to make a decision that I wasn't going to be somebody who was going to be in possession of this kind of archive. Now, in the age of the Internet, it's sort of a foolish notion to think that you can wall off these kinds of images because if you have a computer in your house that's hooked up to the internet and you don't have a fantastically effective net nanny, well, the, the same risk is there. But there was something different about knowing that those were my father's publications. It wasn't just something online or something in the library. It was my father's publications. And that was, you know, I don't know, on some level it feels like that was problematic. I decided I didn't want to be that guy, being the one who essentially exposed my kids to that particular form of quote-unquote art. <laughs> so I disposed of them. And the question is a very valid one. You know, exactly what do you do? 
because yeah, it's not the kind of thing you donate. Well, Masters of None, one of the podcasts that you can find on www.simplysyndicated.com has made a, an effective and very joking reference to the concept of porn in the woods. And I think that it's probably true that when we were little kids, that is how you would dispose of something like this. If you hit the same sort of decision point that I'd reached where I said, yeah, I, I don't want to be the person who's collecting this particular set of reading materials. If my kids want to read something that's too mature for them, I'd rather it be something that actually has weight and gravity to it. James Joyce's Ulysses, uh, Kara, The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, something like that. Uh, that's different, right? Well, maybe disposing of it was just you know, taking it out to the woods somewhere and burying it under some leaves because they, they've got a joking website, but a real website, and pornofthewoods.net, pornofthewoods.com, something like that, where they visually depicted that same concept of you know, being a kid and being out and, and you know, riding your bike somewhere or wandering through the woods somewhere and finding somebody's old you know, men's magazine. In my case, I chose a different approach. There was an adult bookstore somewhere in town. I took the things that I didn't want in my house anymore, put them in a trash bag and put them inside their dumpster. Seemed like the most appropriate dumpster to put that material in. I wasn't even comfortable, honestly, wasn't even comfortable with that particular trash bag sitting in my own trash can at the edge of my own particular driveway. Of course, none of that was illegal. You know, I don't know if today there wouldn't be some sort of hullabaloo over the kids finding the magazines, but you know, I definitely back then, nothing in that situation was illegal. Uh, it was nothing particularly in my mind legally pornographic about Playboy magazine. Uh, and again, we're talking about the very early seventies, uh, maybe even all the way through the late seventies. If you're including things I would have accumulated on my own by riding your bike to a used bookstore and buying a magazine. I just don't know that, I don't know that the law was Reagan-esque at that point in time. But if you hit the age of 16 years old and you're finally able to drive around on your own, you have the freedom of motion from um, the perspective of being able to go to your own a convenience store with no one in the car with you, it was still then illegal for a 16-year-old to buy beer. And yet, that's the other you know, kind of key sort of question mark about you know, if I wouldn't want my kids doing what I did, it's probably a mistake. And yet this is how I grew up. So here in a minute, I'll talk a little bit about beer. Masters of None. Hey, it's Jay from Masters of None inviting you to check us out. We're the comedy podcast that doesn't suck, except for art. And Mike. And art. Totally. Dicks. Check us out at mastersofnoneshow.com. When you're 16 years old and you've got a car and you drive up, especially if you're a bigger-than-average guy, it may be possible to walk into a convenience store, pick up a six-pack, and purchase it, and go. Back then, again, same time period, we're dealing with the very pre-Reagan era or the very early part of the Reagan era. You're not going to encounter a lot of resistance to that, not like you would today. Mothers Against Drunk Driving existed as an entity, but I'm not 100% sure I knew who they were at the time. But even if you had large chain stores, large chains of convenience stores, with unified personnel practices and unified company policies that had on its own decided that they were going to be very careful about how they distributed alcohol because the law was clear. There wasn't a need for a new law that says, hey, here's the drinking age. In the state that I grew up in, 18 years old was the legal drinking age for what we would call 3.2 beer, a very watered down beer. And when you think about, well, what is 3.2? You're thinking about most of the things that are produced by Anheuser-Busch, at least back then, or by um, 
you know, Miller Brewing Company or any of the other Milwaukee brewing companies, your, your, your Slits, your Old Milwaukee's, your Pearls, all those sort of beers. Now, I'm so comfortable and fluent discussing beers of this ilk, brands like Schlitz and Old Milwaukee and Natural Light, because that's what I could afford. Because the number one thing that prevented me from doing any sort of experimenting with drugs was money. I had an ironic conversation with an executive maybe four years ago. He had recently moved into the city that I live in and had moved himself into the very best part of town in the very best school district where you had both great public and private schools to pick from. And beyond any you know, measure that you would seek, these were the best schools in my part of the state that I live in. And we were talking about houses and school districts and you know things of that nature. And I mentioned to him that, well, the one thing that was certain was that there was no way I would ever in a million years live in his school district. I would not put my kids in the public school where he lived. He was not only shocked by that, he was frankly concerned. I was the first time in my few months of working with him that I'd ever seen actual fear <laughs> from this guy. Uh, great leader, strong, confident, decisive. But I saw some indecision that really caught me by surprise. And he said, he said, well, that's crazy. I'm, I'm deeply concerned by what you're telling me because I moved in and bought you know, fairly expensive property in this part of town, partly because of the resale values, because the schools were great. You know, if I ever needed to sell this house and move somewhere else, now that I'm getting more familiar with the area, you know, do I need to worry about whether I'm going to be able to sell my house? Was I wrong about the quality of the schools? I said, no, you're not wrong about the quality of the schools. Those are great schools. You'll, you'll be fine. You will have no trouble selling your house to anybody that falls into the spectrum of what we would call normal, ordinary people. I'm just a little bit weird. I know from my own personal experience and from my own personal convictions that if I were to place my kids in that school district, only one of two things are going to happen, and neither one in my mind are going to be all that good. One is that my kids are going to be the poor kids in the rich school. Or the other is that my kids are going to have the resources to be part of the culture of that school. But you know what? There's something you've got to worry about. As somebody who has kids in that school district going to that school, there's enough disposable income that the drugs you're dealing with are not just going to be tobacco and alcohol. In fact, there's enough disposable income that the drugs you're going to be dealing with, the drugs your kids are going to be saying no to, are going to be of greater variety and greater quantity, and they're not just going to be about alcohol and marijuana. They're going to be opium-based, for want of a better word, because there's a market there, and the market is going to price people, you know, my family, out of that particular market. At least when I was growing up, I didn't have money for the kind of beers that I enjoy today. I didn't have money for, you know, exotic foreign, interesting, craft beers. I was buying whatever was cheap and whatever was affordable and whatever I thought the clerk behind the counter would, would be willing to sell me. Now, here's the part where it gets a little bit embarrassing. And I mean this with all honesty. There was absolutely no racism involved in my motives. But after the first time of being turned down at one of the major chains, being turned down at the kind of convenience store that I would go to for gasoline or a candy bar or a soft drink, I figured I needed to go to different convenience stores than the ones that I would normally traffic, for want of a better word. And they needed to be a combination of close enough to my house that a trip to the convenience store wouldn't take a long time. If someone was sending me out to just quickly buy some aspirin or something, I could buy some beer, stash it in the trunk, 
and have all that happen in the same trip and not make it obvious that I've been gone for too long. So I had to be close enough, but at the same time far enough away from home. And that led me to the Korean-owned grocery stores. Now, these grocery stores had a couple of distinctions that I thought were pretty good. One, a variety of the low-end, cheaper beer, which is what I could afford. And the other, almost never IDing anyone. Now, again, it would be probably racist of me if I had gone to these stores because I thought I could trick people of a different culture into thinking I was older than I was. But there's probably some reality to that, that it is difficult to be certain what the age is of somebody. And because I was of a different race and speaking English as a primary language and you know, having a somewhat lower voice and being a bigger guy and being polite by and large and having a really good vocabulary, I just seemed older to them. And once you've successfully bought from every member of the family once, you become 18 years old. You become, in their minds, old enough because you were old enough the last time and they don't want to be the kind of businessman who would break the law and sell beer to somebody underage. So they tell themselves that you're older than you are without you ever having to produce an ID confirming or denying it. I never held a fake ID. I never needed a fake ID because when I was 16 and the first part of being 17 years old, I was pretty much buying my beer from Korean owned convenience stores. And from that point forward, I had a beard and it dawned on me before I was even 17 and a half that having a beer meant that not only was I passing for 18 years old in the convenience stores, I was also passing for 21 years old in the same kinds of liquor stores, the liquor stores owned by people who had their store far enough away from the beaten path that they weren't corporately driven in their mentality. And therefore it was, I was able then to experiment with not just beer, but also with gin and with whiskey and with vodka didn't care much for vodka. I've got a gin story that's pretty funny. Well, it's one of those things where when you're making mistakes growing up, do you make mistakes where in the process of, of growing up, you lose pieces of your history? This is the thing with drugs that I always didn't like. And at some point, I may do an entire inappropriate conversations on this topic. When I feel that I've been a little bit too liberal in my thinking, I'll, I'll shift strongly conservative. And what that's going to sound like is my way of just saying, hey, I've never met anybody who used a lot of drugs, who had the benefit of that mind-expanding ex experience, who could take me there. It seemed like you know, people talk about it all the time having the big insight and you know, uh, the whole Timothy Leary notions of LSD usage and all that other sort of stuff. But it, was, it never seemed to me that I was getting those insights shared with me. To me, you're going to get much bigger, better insights shared with you from somebody who's made a deep dive into literature than you are with somebody who's made a deep dive into the drug culture. And that was sort of my perspective on that. Because obviously when you've blacked completely out, you don't have the ability to share with people what that experience was. You may not have the ability to share with yourself what that experience was. And yet that's true of alcohol as a drug, just like it's true of any other drug. And I do remember at this one party where I was helping out with the band, I was doing some things, I was moving some stuff around, uh, kind of being a roadie, for want of a better word. Volunteer roadie, seemingly. But the payment for me was, was in gin. And again, being too stupid at the time, too young, too immature, to know better, the bottle of gin that I was given, I couldn't have been more than 16 years old. I might have been less, actually, than 16 years old. I didn't know what to mix it with. I mean, and even if I had... Um, had the wherewithal to put together my own um, gin and tonic, I would not have liked tonic water enough to make that work. And I certainly didn't have the 
the means of gathering together the materials to make a proper martini or a proper Tom Collins. I was just drinking Tanqueray straight from the bottle. But I was drinking Tanqueray straight from the bottle at the same pace that I would have drunk slow gin. Because the only gin that I'd ever had in my life prior to that was the liqueur, was slow gin. Well, something like slow gin is a bit like a fruity schnapps. You can drink that straight from the bottle. You can drink, you know, more of what's in the bottle without, you know, taking on too much strength. You're talking about something that's probably more like 40, 50, 60 proof. Here I'm dealing with 80, 90, 100 proof gin and drinking it in the same quantity and drinking it straight and doing my best not to show that this is a hard thing to do in terms of the feeling that you get going down your throat because it was, you know, it was pure gin. It was a pretty good feeling once it got into your system. But too much, too fast caught up to me on that particular night. And even though I had a ride home, there's no drinking and driving involved, I passed out. I had never at any point before in my experience blacked out. Because although you can drink too much 3-2 beer, and you can lose consciousness drinking 3-2 beer, when you do it drinking 3-2 beer, you know you're getting there because it's such a watered-down version of what we would call beer that you're going to be full before you get there. You're going to have those warning signs. But with straight gin, you're going to get there before you know it. And that's exactly what happened. And in this case, I remember I wasn't like passed out on the floor, people calling the paramedics. I wasn't in any medical danger as far as I could tell. In fact, I don't, it's not passed out at all. The proper term would probably be blacked out because I was still moving around. And I don't know how much time I can't account for. And I still to this day don't know what happened. This is at a party. I don't know where the parents were. It was some other kid's house, but we had a rock and roll band playing upstairs. I was upstairs with the band most of the time. But at one point, I, rem I remember waking up in the hallway, close to the stairs, but still upstairs, far enough away from the band that I could hear people speaking to me. And I had a woman, well, not a woman, a high school girl, face to face with me. Calling, calling out, asking if I was okay. She didn't know my name. But she wanted to know if I was okay. Can I hear her? You know, how many fingers am I holding up? That kind of thing. It was like being a, a player with a concussion sitting on the bench talking to the medical staff. I was sort of coming to. If it was a Gilligan's Island episode, you'd have the screen getting all blurry and squiggly and sort of fading back into focus as I was coming to. And behind her was one of the football players, who were both of them a couple of years older than me. So I'm maybe a freshman in, in high school, and we're dealing with juniors and seniors. I come to, I snap to attention, I start answering questions, and you can tell that the guy is a little bit angry. He's not happy with me. Whatever, whatever I've done has been a problem for him. And I got a sense from her that she was somewhat more sympathetic, and that did nothing for me. Because, again, my experience earlier with these particular magazines was that I was much more responsive to the women who had a great deal of curve to their appearance, and was perhaps somewhat slightly less interested, although, let's be honest, still interested, in the ones who were rail thin. So in other words, if you go back to the culture of the 1960s and say, okay, well, would you have been more interested in someone like Twiggy or someone like Jane Mansfield, Marilyn Monroe, Anita Ekberg, and definitely the latter? I was looking at somebody who made Twiggy look fat. So although she had a boyfriend and she was seemingly popular among the older people in high school, she's not my type at all. So the fact that she was being very sympathetic with me and very worried about my health didn't really ring my bell. I was just, it was nice to see that, you know, somebody was interested in my well-being. And so I came to and I said, yeah, I'm, I think I'm okay. I'm going to be fine. And she said, okay, so as long as you're fine, as long as you're back, I just need you to know one thing. 
this is her speaking, but clearly speaking on behalf of both her and her boyfriend, who is now starting to walk away. She says to me in a stern voice, very different from the voice that she had before when I was, you know, kind of out of it. Never, under any circumstances, do anything like that again. Do you understand me? Never do anything like that again. Nerd Hurdles, where every week, Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid. But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simplysyndicated.com. One of the number one problems with alcohol abuse. I still have no idea what I did. I don't know if I did something too for with or about her, too for with or about him. I don't know. I was blacked out. My assumption is, and it's just an assumption, it's just a guess, that I was probably realizing I was in over my head, realizing I needed a place to sit down, a place to lay down, whatever, and maybe I wandered into a bedroom or someplace like that, and maybe I wandered into a bedroom that they were using in the wrong way and at the wrong time, but I don't know. It's the best guess I have for what would make him so angry and her so weirdly compassionate at once over this kid who had too much to drink kid who shouldn't have been drinking at all. But then again, none of us at this party, high school aged should have been drinking at all. What we were drinking was age 21 and older uh, for the most part, most people were. And if I had walked in on them in a bedroom in the house, my guess is that again, now as a parent from my own perspective, I wouldn't want one of those parties in my house. I wouldn't want the party I went to happening in my house. And if it were, I wouldn't want anybody in my bedrooms. And if some idiotic drunk kid who was blacking out and spacing out broke it up, I'd be in some way kind of weirdly appreciative of that. I'm not sure. I've never been, I've never been the guy or the girl in that situation trying to sneak off into somebody else's bedroom at a party before. That's just not the way, that's not the way I've lived. So I've made some mistakes. I tried to learn from those mistakes and I believe I'm a parent who's got some kids who have not certainly have not used alcohol the way I did. I don't believe have used, you know, have encountered pornography, at least not in the way I did, not in the family's collection of pornography. My kids are pretty well adjusted. I believe they know that they, they live in a family that has um, a mom and a dad who have a great relationship with each other, who still value each other's private time um, and value it a lot. But we have drawn a pretty clear border around where the lines are and pornography had no place to play in that border and beer and alcohol would have been a problem or a distraction either for me as a parent or for them as kids. Think about it in today's middle America. If you're a parent who hosts a party where you invite your kid to invite their friends over and their friends come over to your house and alcohol is served and somebody gets pregnant you are probably going to get sued and you might even go to jail. That's a good example of what I mean by what it means to say, are you just growing up? Or are you just making a mistake as a kid? I think you're just growing up that same situation when the adult role is measured. Well, in that case, perspective has to tell us that that's a very serious legal mistake. <laughs> Thank you.
I mentioned in the intro that I was going to talk a little bit about mistakes in music. And it's funny that, you know, on the one hand, I, I don't view this one as much of a mistake. If I'd waited three to four to five more years to have that first drink of alcohol, it wouldn't have been a big deal. It would have been an okay idea. If I had not encountered pornography until I met V8 Nate, that would have been preferable because in the, in the situation that I was in, I encountered pornography when I was uh, not equipped to do anything about it, so to speak. But in the case of music, I don't feel that same guilt. I'm actually delighted that I've got in my music collection some of the strangest, most eclectic things you possibly could. That I'm not um, somebody who listens to what you hear on the radio even when the radio's off. That's not who I am. I've got a music collection that includes French folk songs and Gregorian chant and includes heavy metal by bands called Carcass, where if you could understand what they were saying, you'd wish you didn't because it's surgically descriptive rock and roll, at least for the first couple of albums. This is, you know, the the palette, the range that you're dealing with. But one of the things in that that I'm most proud of is the do-it-yourself, unique, kind of anti-establishment, but music that is so anti-establishment it isn't even willing to call itself anti-establishment. And the best example of this is The Residents. My family doesn't like The Residents. I have very few friends who like The Residents, and I'm okay with that. I'm going to describe The Residents. I could easily describe them via Wikipedia. They've got a nice Wikipedia page with links to the rest of their world. The Residents is, by all accounts, a band that started in Shreveport, Louisiana, but quickly migrated to San Francisco and decided to release their music through an intentional obscurity or even anonymity that has led them to create their own record label, which for years was how you could get their music, and their own corporation. So with names like the Cryptic Corporation, operating Ralph Records, you could buy, even in the late 70s, music by the residents. Well, first off, Ralph Records. Name comes from the somewhat colorful phrase, calling Ralph on the porcelain telephone. In other words, they chose the name Ralph Records for the same reason they could have easily chosen the name Buick. And by Buick, I mean Buick. You know, although the car company having trademark was a little bit more protected than somebody taking advantage of the pun of Ralphing all over the place. This is the nature of this particular band. This is what Jason Ankeny on allmusic.com says about the band. Over the course of a recording career spanning several decades... The residents remained a riddle of sphinx-like proportions, cloaking their lives and music in a haze of willful obscurity. The band's members never identified themselves by name, always appearing in public in disguise, usually tuxedos, top hats, and giant eyeball masks. I'm not making this up either. Jason is not making this up either. And refusing to grant media interviews, drawing inspiration from the likes of fellow innovators like Harry Parch, Sun Ra, Captain Beefheart and others, the Residents channeled the breadth of American music and Americana music into their idiosyncratic, satiric vision. It goes on to talk about their, their musical insp- instrumentation is very simple. You have a lot of the one-hand keyboard kind of going on in terms of it, connecting the music of the Residents to the music of the Fall. The last handful of Fall albums have included a lot of what I would call one-hand keyboard. Because you can play a keyboard on a rock and roll album in a couple of different ways. You can go 100% Rick Wakeman, play five keyboards at once, perform music that even some classically trained musicians would struggle to imitate. Or you can use, use the keyboard more like um, the Cars would, where the keyboard is simple, straightforward, and, and driving either the melody or the primary harmony. But when you're talking about the residents, even the concepts of melody and harmony don't make sense. 
they're dissonant by design. And this is one of the things that made them for me one of those growing up moments, one of those moments of even at a, at a pretty young age, junior high school, tossing off the mantle of the things that my family would have otherwise blessed, going in a direction that would make people at my church, for example, uncomfortable. This being one of the things that my wife had to overcome when we met and started dating, that if she was going to continue to go out with me, she just had to deal with the fact that his music is kind of a problem. Well, because even when the residents would do songs that people would have heard, so they're going to cover uh, Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones or you know the music of Elvis Presley, the residents do it in a way that almost renders those songs unrecognizable. I had previously heard Devo's version of Satisfaction and found it to be somewhat wanting. And the difference, though, is that if you go from the Rolling Stones or like an Otis Redding version of the song Satisfaction to Devo... And you feel like that's a journey where one of them is rock and roll and the other one's not rock anymore. You can measure the distance of that journey and cover that entire distance again before you get to the residence version. The first album that I bought by the residence, uh, still one of my favorites, in fact, both conceptually and in terms of execution, is commercial album. The idea behind the residence commercial album was that there were going to be uh, 40 songs on it, 20 songs on each side, each exactly one minute in duration, and very short, quick ideas. I mean, your musical idea has to be straightforward and to the point, because you only have 60 seconds or 59 and a half seconds in which to do it. When I first heard the album, what attracted me to it was first you had reasonably good cover art, where you could see the tuxedos and eyeballs were part of it, and it was sort of upside down and twisted, and lots of songs meant that if a an idea was going to be a bad idea, it would be over before you knew it. And if an idea was going to be a good idea, it was easy to experience repeatedly. But I at first thought that they were taking a, a good but cheap pot shot at radio by making the songs short and making them all the same length. I thought that they were talking about commercial as in commercial music. But what they really meant was literally commercial in terms of the length of the song being that standardized one minute of quote unquote airtime. And here's the irony. Because the residents could not get their music played, it was too weird. It was too different. It was too controversial. Because they couldn't get their music played on the radio, they put out this commercial album where they were going to then use those lengths of songs to buy airtime to play their music on the radio as if it was commercially purchased airtime. Cryptic Corporation advertising the new album on Ralph Records by the residents buying a slot and getting on alternative rock radio that way. They were told that they weren't allowed to do that because because they were buying the ad and paying for it, it amounted to payola. The ironies abound here that a group that couldn't get played on the radio because of all sorts of quote-unquote legal forms of payola, the control that the major record labels have over the airwaves, for example, they were then being you know conjoined against doing it in what should have been the legal way. I ought to be able to buy advertising time and advertise anything I want to, even if it's a song called Die in Terror. Just to quickly hit on a few of the things that make The Residents interesting on albums that they've released. Eskimo, a largely instrumental or instru- instrumental slash tribal chant, kind of a Nanook of the North almost piece of storytelling. The lives of native people in the Arctic region, so to speak. Their album Unavailable, which ironically I have now. They'd originally imp- uh, made the album, recorded Not Available as their second official release, but their plan was never to release it. They thought that if they could make the album, actually record the songs, and keep it completely under wraps, its anonymity would make it a better work than it ever could be if they put it out. 
And having heard it, I think they're probably right. Third Reich and Roll is an album that people may have seen or heard from before. Um, a Dick Clark face on a Hitler-esque sort of body with two songs, both of them complete mashups in the 15 to 20 minute length range. One swastikas on parade, the other Hitler was a vegetarian. Neither song have anything directly to do with Nazism, neither one having any sort of political bent, both of them essentially being kind of audio collage mashups of various twisted versions of rock and roll songs in a way that reminds me of things I've heard both uh, around the same time and mainly later from bands like Nurse with Wound. Now, if you've never heard of The Residents before, or Snake Finger, or Nurse with Wound, that's okay. They are intentionally do-it-yourself rock and roll that's willfully outside the mainstream, and that's one of the things that I find the most appealing about them. But they're also probably not anywhere near obscure, at least compared to other bands that I've never heard of. In other words, these are bands that I've heard of. These bands are outside the mainstream, but they're mainstream enough for me to know about them. In other words, the most obscure band is not going to be a band like these. It's going to be a band I haven't heard of before. If I was going to recommend a starting place for someone on the residence, it would be the album Demons Dance Alone. Um, it has enough of the performance art quality to it that you can get a sense of their theatricality. It also was released on video, but I wouldn't recommend the video first. I'd recommend the video second. It's one of my favorite rock videos, but it's better if you're familiar with, with the material. Released in 2002 and described by some as sort of the residents' response to um, their emotional response anyway to 9-11, it's got a very nice collection of strange residents-like pop songs. And when I refer to it as being accessible, remember, I'm the only person in my family who would say that. But I think even, even the people in my family who wish that I'd never encountered this man and never listened to their stuff would probably prefer everything on Demon's Dance alone to anything in the Mole trilogy or elsewhere. In their, in their catalog, it's at least more accessible from that kind of comparison, even though the song names um, give you a hint that you're in for trouble. Demons Dance Alone, Make Me Moo, or um, Betty's Body. Before I leave the topic of The Residence, I just want to quickly call out that one of the things that I enjoy the most about TheResidence.com, their website, is a section called Graveyard, or Failed Projects. The residents have more interesting material in their failed projects than some bands do in anything that they've ever delivered. Vileness Fats was planned to be a full-length underground art musical film. It was shot for four years before being shut down and abandoned. Another CD-ROM game project called I Murdered Mommy. CD-ROM games were not unusual for the band. They, uh, they had a Bad Day at the Midway CD-ROM and Freak Show. And I've come very close on online before to picking up a copy of the freak show game i've never played or experienced a game by the residents before and i fear that by now the pc game technology uh would make the games look worse than they would have at the time at the time they were cutting edge and now because of our experience of gaming having advanced so much with things like playstations and xboxes that it, it wouldn't hold up so it's worth looking at the residents just from the perspective of their graveyard of failed projects. The other one, speaking back to the religious notions again and, and why the residents would have been so unwelcome in my family from the perspective of their religious material and their impact on religion, is that one of their works is called Wormwood. And what Wormwood does is it takes an intentionally but largely accurately look at the strangest stories in the Bible by writing music around those stories. One of my favorites in that series is called How to Get Ahead. 
It's sung from the perspective of Salabang, from the Salabang's last dance concept of being, what if you were the preteen or barely teenage girl whose mom and and father, stepfather, the king, had pressured you into doing a dance for an official function, and your dance was perceived so sexually and was so sexually arousing to men in the area, including your own stepfather, that in an almost lustful way he offered to give you any gift that you would want as thanks for your dance, and what your mom told you that she wanted you to ask was for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So the entire song is sung from the girl's perspective. There were guys staring at my body. There were guys staring at my breasts. That sort of introductory lyrics. And, of course, the irony is that she's dealing with her sense of guilt at having done something that she thought was good, that she was supposed to get rewarded for, but that the reward itself actually being a brutal act of murder. And the song, of course, called How to Get Ahead. This is what I mean by the music that I have listened to during my formative years growing up being something that either from a pop music perspective or from my own family's perspective, you know, maybe a little bit embarrassing. I think the message, of course, is that when you're growing up, if you don't make mistakes, you're making a mistake. So there's got to be something in there that's a little bit embarrassing for everybody. And hopefully embarrassing in a way that doesn't carry serious long-term consequences, but instead, when it's all said and done, carries a punchline. If things go according to plan, I want to talk a little bit about parenting again next week, and not from the perspective of how I grew up and mistakes my parents might have made or things that I learned from and tried to do differently, but from the perspective of how it is that we interact with our kids. Uh, Does it make sense to uh, speak to your kids in more mature ways than they're ready for, or does it make sense to keep everything a googly-boogly kind of a talk. Um, So there may be a second piece to this, which once again focuses on the question of parent and child relationships. In the meantime, for either this inappropriate conversation or the next one, if you'd like to put some dialogue into the topic yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I also am available now on Twitter at IC underscore Greg. And the Inappropriate Conversations show is listed as a cause and is available as a page on Facebook. Thanks for listening.
music by Kevin McLeod.